Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 28. And uh, before we get there, I want to uh, show you a quick um, image. And it's an image. Uh, let's go to the next one, Andre. Sorry about that. Yes. So you, you, you can't see it uh, as, as much as I wish we could. Uh, but this is a, a map of, of Paul's travel. You might remember he was in Jerusalem. He was sent to Capernaum. And then he made the journey all the way to that island to my far left is Malta. And then the passage that we're reading this morning, they depart from Malta and go through Syracuse, Regium, and they finally land in Italy in a town called Puteoli. And so just to give you a sense of where Paul has come from and where he lands, and this will, of course, uh, lead Paul to Rome, where church historians have told us that this is where the Apostle Paul uh, was eventually martyred. There's a good chance that Paul never left Rome after his arrival. He had a fruitful ministry there. He could have left to go into Spain for a season, but uh, church history is conflicted. We do know that he eventually died in Rome as a martyr. This is God's word. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. And there we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we were making our way to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering to worship you. It's true that we become like the things that we worship. And our heart's desire, Lord, is to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, whom we are worshiping this morning. We're reminded again, Lord, that from his resurrect resurrected state of how Jesus continued to act and how he continued to move and how he continued to build his church through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, and so, Father, we pray that what we see in this passage uh, that points us to Christ and his good gifts to us, that we might lay hold of these gifts and that we might uh, become more and more like him. Father, uh, forgive us our sins, bind the enemy and the evil one who does not want your word to take root. Father, we pray that you will bless your word as it is preached faithfully a thousandfold in our hearts and in our lives, and that it would result in more praise and honor of you. Do this, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Paul Tripp, in his book, Lead, he makes a distinction between our formal theology and our functional theology. Our formal theology is, is the truth from God's Word that God reveals about himself and about his kingdom it's truths that we know about him and about the gospel. Our functional theology, it's how we actually live our lives. 
And Tripp makes the statement that oftentimes in Christendom, there is a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what we profess and what we say and what God has revealed versus how we actually live. And he gives evidence in, in, in the prophet Jonah. If you were to read the book of Jonah, Jonah himself would confess and does confess that, Lord, I know that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's Jonah's formal theology. And yet when you read the book of Jonah, his functional theology did not lead him to act that way. It led him to go the opposite way. It led him to want to die at the sight of Ninevites repenting. There's a disconnect between what he professes and what he knows and what he lives. You see this in the apostle Peter, right? Peter has a revelation from heaven that, that all foods are clean, that Gentiles are clean, that Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews. And yet when you read Galatians, that's not what Peter lives now, they're not the only ones to make that mistake. Don't we kind of know that of all earthly institutions, that the church is the only one that endures forever? Don't we know that governments will fall, nations will fall? Political parties will end. We're in fraternities and sororities and civic organizations. We have earthly families. And the only institution that endures forever is the family of God. We know that. We know that God has been on rescue mission from the beginning when he made us in his image after his likeness to scatter image bearers who worship him across the face of the earth. And we know that Satan sabotaged that. And we know that God has promised to send a redeemer, a, 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 a Jew, a, a man born of woman, born under the law, son of God, son of man, to be our big brother, and to rescue us from our sin and to engraft us into a family where we now, as brothers and sisters, cry out, Abba, Father, we are the family of God. We confess this. And yet, functionally, we don't always live like the church matters. And that this family is the only enduring community. Before COVID, some of the statistics said that the average Christian attended church three times a month. Post-COVID, and these are for, for some right reasons, that number's down to two times a month. Most Christians view Sunday morning attendance as the ceiling of their Christian life. I go to church on a Sunday and I've done my religious thing for the week. When you actually read the book of Acts, it's the floor. It's the, 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 the smallest thing. It's the least thing that Christians can do. It's to gather together and worship God's name for an hour and a half, one day a week. 
If you read Acts, they had meals together. They broke bread together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer together. They pooled their resources to meet needs together. They strategized for mission together. They handled conflict together. And here's the thing, we have more books on community than they did. We have more resources than they did. Transportation is easier now than it's ever been in the history of the church. What took Paul weeks, we can make that trip from Jerusalem to Rome an hour and a half on a flight. It's not transportation. It's not house sizes. The average apartment today is bigger than what they lived in back then. It's not a money problem. We have more wealth than they had then. It's not a freedom problem. No one is persecuting us because we spend time with Christians. It's not a technology problem. It's a heart problem that we have let the thinking of the world diminish and belittle this treasured gift of God to us. What I want to do this morning is just remind us that the church of God is a gracious gift of God as we faithfully bear our crosses and follow Jesus. What I want to do is to help what we formerly know take root and become something that we functionally live. And so here's the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is that as we follow Jesus, as we bear our crosses, life will get hard. That there's a phrase in here that, that it's easy to overlook, and it's right there in verse 13. It says, after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. That's not a throwaway verse. What Paul is saying is that some mysterious wind arise, and it pushed us to Rome faster than we thought we'd get there. In other words, Paul is being pushed by the Holy Spirit to Rome. And we know what Rome means for him. He's going to die. And so, first point, even the most mature saints lack courage with cross-bearing. All right, Redeemer, when you read the Pauline epistles, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life is a race, right? So he uses language like, I went to Jerusalem to let them know about the gospel that I proclaimed the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain. First Corinthians, he says, I, have, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Second Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And so Paul views his life as a race. If that's the case, then when Paul met Jesus in Acts chapter 9, that's the beginning of his race. He is now ready, set, go. And what you start to see is in his missionary journeys, each missionary journey is a loop, right? It, it, it's a lap around the pool. And so, you, I mean, a lap around the, 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 the field. And so Paul leaves, runs the race and go plants churches and comes back and reports. He goes again and comes back and reports. He comes again and comes back and reports. Then he's sent down to Jerusalem in chains and he stays in chains for two years. And then he's running this race just to make it to Rome. And then in verse 16, when it says that 
we came into Rome. He's starting his final lap. Now, how does Paul respond knowing that this is in front of him? Paul remembers that that lap, that that piece of tape in Rome, it's it's two-sided tape. On the one hand, he's going to get there and he's going to go and meet with, be with Jesus and defend the gospel, go be with Jesus. But the other side of that tape is martyrdom. He's, he remembers Jesus told him, I, I will show you how much you must suffer. He remembers Agabus who says, give me your belt, Paul. The man whose belt that I tie will himself be bound and will be handed over to Gentiles. He remembers Acts 23 when Jesus appears to him that night and says, you will go and testify about me in Rome. And guess what? Jesus makes no promise of earthly ministry beyond Rome to Paul. So Paul is acutely aware of what awaits him. So how does Paul respond knowing all of this? Well, he tells us, he says, what are you doing weeping, breaking my heart? Acts 21, for I am not only ready to be in prison, but to even die. Second Timothy 4, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And so that's Paul's formal theology. His formal theology with respect to cross bearing is I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. That's what that's what he's told us. That's what he's written now. What is his functional theology in this passage? It's in verse 15. It's the end of it. Paul tells us that he thanked God and took courage. That's what Luke tells us. Now, that phrase, he took courage. You ought to underline that. Now, what does that mean when it says that he took courage? Luke is giving us a window into the emotional state of Paul. If Luke tells us Paul took courage, then it means that leading up to that moment, Paul was weak and Paul was terrified. And this mature saint who just wrote, I'm ready, is now having second thoughts. Now that phrase, he took courage, you might find this in Mark chapter 15. Remember when Jesus died and Joseph of Arimathea went to go get Jesus' body and he had to go and ask Pilate for the body? Mark tells us he took courage to do that. In other words, the stakes were high. He, as a member of the Sanhedrin, is now identifying with the crucified Messiah. And he's going to be ostracized both from government and from the religious leaders. And so for him to go ask for the body of a crucified Messiah, it takes courage. But that phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. It's war language. It's used in the context of Israel fighting and they are overwhelmed by their enemies and their enemies loom large and big. And there is only one path forward in obedience, and that is to fight in the name of the Lord. And so oftentimes you'll see them fall back and be afraid. And the Lord says something and does something. And then they take courage and they go in. And so this is an admittance of weakness. It's an admittance of spiritual warfare in the moment of following Jesus, that that the cost of following him is costly. How did Luke know that Paul took courage in verse 15? Maybe it was a private conversation. 
Maybe Luke is excited. Paul, we made it. We're in Rome. We're in Rome. And Paul is like, yeah, we're in Rome. But our lives are about to diverge. You're going to finish writing your book. And I'm not making it out of here alive. I'm so thankful for you, brother. But our lives will go in different directions in Rome. And so I'm excited to be in Rome. But I'm terrified because I know what this means. What's the point that even the most mature of us at any given moment can lack courage? And you felt it when it's time to bear your cross and to follow Jesus. You felt the pit in your stomach. You felt the, 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 the war in your soul. You felt the temptation to let your fearful flesh rule or the idols of false safety and false comfort and false peace reign. Maybe someone at work exposes their religious convictions and you hear it. And in that moment, you have a decision to make. Do I deny the name of Jesus? Or do I speak the truth in love? Or maybe someone really did hurt you. And according to Matthew 18, we're called to go towards them, woman to woman or man to man. And maybe you feel the, the pit in your stomach because you don't know what it's going to go like if you do that. You're having to relive what they said and what they did and you have a choice in that moment. Do I bear my cross and let God's word shape my response? Or do I worship this false God of false peace? Or maybe it's a work trip and the guys or the girls after you've done your work and your coworkers want to go out and, and, and do things that married or unmarried Christians ought not be doing. And you have a choice in that moment. Do I bear my cross and honor the Lord Jesus? and honor my spouse, and honor my king and my God? Or do I go the way that they're going? I don't know what the situation is, but if our Christian lives never require courage, then there's a good chance that we are not denying ourselves and carrying our crosses. If our lives never involve risk or hard conversations or hard decisions, then we are probably living too comfortably and easy. We see the, the Apostle Paul in the midst of cross-bearing, he lacked courage, which moves us to our second point. Before we get to where we find it or where he finds it in this passage, which is our third point, I want to show us where he did not find encouragement. And I think this is important. Now, I think the lo this is the second point where we will not find the encouragement we need. Now, that location of when Paul was encouraged, I think it's telling that, that Luke is telling us precisely when Paul was strengthened and emboldened to stay the course. And I, I actually think brotherhood is a theme in this section we're in. And uh, I'll show it to you here shortly. But, but, but pay attention 
uh, to the passage that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, that when Paul actually meets with the Jews in Rome down in verse 17, notice that phrase in, in Acts 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, right? So brothers is used twice in the passage we're looking at in the future, right? But, but, but it's also in our passage this morning that, that you see it in verse 14. There we found brothers, verse 15, and the brothers there. So brothers is a theme, right? But you also see it, and it's easy to miss it, uh, right there at the end of verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Who are those twin gods? What's going on there? Andre, will you show them uh, this? So this is a ship, probably a ship of what the ship that Paul was on looks like. And you'll notice at the prow, and I had to learn this term. I didn't know what a prow was, but it's the most forward part of the ship, right there on my far left. And you'll notice, right, two statues or two wooden carvings kind of protruding from the ship. Now, that's important. That's enough, Andre. Thank you. So when Luke tells us that this ship had the twin gods as figureheads, what he's saying is that when we boarded this ship, there were twin gods that were carved into or protruding from the ship. Well, what are those twin gods? Some of your Bibles will call them the Dioscuri brothers. That's important. Who are they? They're the twin sons of Zeus who were believed to give people courage. They were the gods that you'd worship if you were traveling and wanted to make it to land safely. We know them today through astrology, the Gemini, the twins, all of this kind of goes back to these polytheistic false gods that if you were a Roman citizen, then you would gain courage by offering sacrifices to them, by worshiping them and their world system. If you were a Roman citizen, a non-Christian, and you were reading this, this little insert that, that, that what Luke is trying to say is that they would have taken courage in these false deities who were supposed to watch over them, who were supposed to give them safe travel. And here's the thing about Paul, you never hear him taking courage over some false deities of the world around him. He gets no courage in them and what they're doing and what they offer. Paul does not take courage in the world system around him. That is not a source of encouragement. The world around him is not going to help him carry his cross and follow Jesus Christ. It's not there. And you'll also notice down in verse 17, which we'll look at in a few weeks, he meets with the Jews and he uses language like our people, our customs, our fathers. And here's the thing. If you were a Jew, if you were a first century Jew, then you would take courage in that community. Right. You would find courage in your family of origin. You would find courage in your promises and these covenants, all of these things that you know. And here's the thing about Paul. He does not take courage in either system. His heart is encouraged following Jesus with the world and the way it thinks. And his heart is not encouraged purely by family of origin. 
This is a reminder, isn't it? Now, when it comes to bearing our crosses and denying ourselves, the world around us will not help us. Its wisdom is not useful. And so this means that when it comes to denying self and following the way of the master, that we can't be discipled by the Wall Street Journal or our daily horoscope or CNN or Fox or NBC or more new books or more new podcasts or all the ways of worldly thinking when it comes to bearing our crosses and denying ourselves and living the way of King Jesus, please do not make the mistake of thinking that the world system is going to help you do that. It will not. It cannot. It is against King Jesus. And neither will you find this in our families of origin. They might love you, but if they don't know King Jesus, they don't offer you the wisdom and encouragement you need to deny yourself and follow Jesus. And so this non-believing co-worker that you encounter, the world might tell you, oh, that's their truth. Just leave them alone. You see how that does not help you carry your cross and follow Jesus? Someone has offended you. The world's going to tell you, cut them off. Start over somebody else. Get them out your life. That does not sound like King Jesus. Or this work trip. The world's going to say, what happens here stays here. That does not sound like King Jesus. The world or closest friends who don't know Jesus will not help us deny self and follow Jesus. So where do we find encouragement to continue in our cross-bearing? That's our last point. It's found in the church. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God does not give courage to cross-bear to his people. The God who calls us to bear crosses is the God who gives us all we need to do so. And you see this in the book of Acts. You remember Stephen, who's, who was martyred in Acts chapter 6? You remember what we're told about him? Before the martyrdom, before the, care, before the carrying his cross, before the persecution, we're told that he was full of what? The Holy Spirit. Full of grace, full of power, right? So, so God is the one who's given him this courage to stand in front of those who want his life. But we're also told more acutely in, in Acts 23, the following night, the Lord Jesus stood by Paul and the Lord Jesus told Paul, take courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also do in Rome. And so when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts says our triune God gives us by his spirit and his gifts all that we need to stay the course. And Acts would say yes and amen. But here is something else that we often miss. 
that one of God's greatest means is other believers. Look at that phrase again. Paul thanks God and then takes courage. The source is God, but then he is encouraged. Now, the question that we have to wrestle with is what happened to help him? What happened? And it's precisely after two sentences about brothers. Look at verse 14. And there in Puteoli, we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And as we were coming to Rome, verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us on seeing them. Paul thanked God and took courage. Now, what's happening there? Who are these brothers? It's not the twin brothers on the ship and it's not the brothers in the next verse, the Jews. Who are these brothers and sisters? You know who it is. These are Christians. These are Christians who probably came down to Jerusalem during Pentecost, who saw the outpouring of the Spirit, who then went back to Rome in that part of the world and became followers of King Jesus. Now, what did these Christians do? First, they practiced radical hospitality. When Paul landed at Puteoli, he looked for Christians and he found them. But then it says that the Christians, our word says, invited them to stay. A, a better translation would be summoned him, implored him to stay with them. And look, look, look how long they hosted Paul. It says for seven days. Now, now why seven days? Why does Luke tell us seven days? There are a few theories out there. One theory is that the, 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 the soldier who is, has to guard Paul, seven days of me not having to go provide for this guy, that is great, right? On one hand, this could have been a benefit to the soldier watching Paul. On another hand, remember last week when Paul was in Malta, the, the Publius, the, the, the leading official on the island, he hosted Paul for how long? Three days. And so what Luke is telling us that 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 the Christian hospitality is even better than the hospitality of the barbarians. That, that that could be the case, that Luke could be emphasizing that if the world, if God used non-believers who hosted him, how much more did Christians bring him in? But there's another reason, and I think this is the most compelling. What would have happened in the span of seven days? The Sabbath. And Paul would have worshiped with them. He would have partook of the sacrament with them. He would have sat under God's word with them. He would have devoted himself to the teachings with them. He would have sang songs with them. He would have prayed with them. That is what encouraged Paul. But it gets better. Here's another thing that they do. Did you notice when Paul leaves, and so we came to Rome, most scholars say that Paul does not make it to Rome, to verse 16. So when you say, and we so came to Rome, we should probably translate that as we were heading to Rome. 
And so notice what he says. And the brothers there from Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Now, this is really important because if, if, if they're coming from Rome and Paul is on the, the, the Via Appia, and it's, a, it's about 130 miles from where he would have caught it in Puteoli to go across into Rome, what, what, what Luke is telling us is those saints did not wait until Paul made it to Rome, but they came out. 40 miles to meet him on the way. And he got to one town and they met him there. He, got, he traveled another seven miles and more people came and met him there. And so when Paul walked into Rome, guess what? Paul was not walking into Rome alone. And here's the thing, chains, which Paul is in, and shame go hand in hand in Greek and in, in Roman culture. And so you hear Paul telling Timothy things like this, do not be ashamed of my chains, but suffer along with me. God blessed the house of Onesiphorus because he was not ashamed of my chains. And so when you see these Christians leaving Rome, coming 40 and 35 miles to walk into Rome with this guy who is in chains, you know what they're saying? They're saying, Paul, we are not ashamed to be called your brothers and your sisters, no matter what the world sees in you. They're not ashamed, but it gets better. There's more here. Craig Keener, he says, the nature of Paul's entry is noteworthy. The disciples came from far away to meet him. This was an appropriate welcome for a royal emissary or official. It was required in Roman culture to go out to meet a returning general or an emperor. One reason Cicero gave for divorcing his wife was when he returned from a long absence, she failed to meet him. Do you hear what's happening? That if this is the case, they are doing more than simply walking down the Via Appia with Paul. They're reminding him of the bigger story that he's a part of. They're saying, Paul, you may look like the refuse of the world to the world, but you've conquered in King Jesus. You may look unimportant and dispensable, but in God's kingdom, you are already victorious. You may look like you're losing your life, Paul, but you're gaining your life. You're denying yourself and taking up your cross and you're following Jesus. And we're here to celebrate and to remind you of that. No wonder when Paul experiences that hospitality, that worship, that encouragement, that wisdom, that 
presence and those messages, no wonder in the middle of him losing courage, it's at that moment when these saints come alongside of him. And here's the thing. Luke does not tell us nothing, anything the saints said. His emphasis here is on presence and proximity. Just draw near to him, draw near to him, worship with him, pray for him, sing to him, remind him of the gospel. And that is when Paul takes courage. This is good news, isn't it? This is a reminder of the type of people that we're called to be. That when crosses gets heavy in this body, we move towards the people in the body who will walk with us in our shame and not be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters who may not have all the right words, but their presence speaks volumes. It's a reminder that we're to be a church that welcomes weary travelers. We're to be a church that we walk with people in the eyes of the world who appear to be in shameful cross-bearing situations. We're to remind them of this new story, Jesus's story. We're to remind them that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We're to remind them that you're finding your life by losing your life. We're to remind them that cross-bearing is costly and it's a season for you to feel this acutely. But there is glory here. There is goodness here. There is beauty here. Jesus is here. Now, what moves us to become like this? A few motivations. I don't think it's ironic that Luke ends his gospel with Jesus walking towards Golgotha and a Simon of Cyrene carries the cross of Christ with him. That's not a throwaway verse. The physical nature of bearing a cross was too much for Messiah. And someone walked with him down that road. May that be true for us. But it's a promise, right? That Jesus promises that, that he's forming a new family. He says to them, truly, I say to you that there is no one who has lost house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm building a new family, a new family that the world cannot give you, a new family where we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's a motivation to lean into this. The work of Christ is a motivation, isn't it? That he bore your sins alone on a tree. He is your older brother who left home above to rescue you. He stepped into our world to bear our crosses. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters If bearing your cross is difficult, let people in. 
you will be surprised at what being with the saints can do. Cultivate habits of friendship in the body so that when those hard laps come, you're not alone. Be intentional to avail yourselves to others beyond those you live with. Be willing to recognize cues from people that life is just hard and I'm struggling and I can't do it alone. You were never meant to do it alone. You were meant to walk hand in hand with God and with the church. I'm going to close with with this. I'm going to read this. And I normally don't do this, but I'll read uh, an email that I received. And this person asked me to read this to the session as well. And here's what she said. Pastor Ella, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to serve us by preaching and teaching God's word every week. The Lord uses you to encourage me regularly, and I'm thankful for God's work through you. Thank you for faithfully studying the word of God and teaching me, for reminding me of God's steadfast love this week. I also want to let you in the session know how much it means to me that you took the time to physically meet with me and pray for me and my family. It was beautiful and so meaningful. I was reminded throughout your prayers of how much God has already answered them. He has provided for us physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. He has surrounded me with family at Redeemer that have walked alongside me, prayed with me, supported me, given wise counsel, brought meals, and provided childcare. He has encouraged me with this word and given us stability even when parts of our lives are so chaotic and unknown. When I look back on this past year of struggle and hardship, I cannot look back without seeing God's steadfast love for us. God is so faithful. You hear that? This has been chaotic. And I couldn't do it alone. And this body has come around me, and I'm thankful. May this be a place where when cross-bearing gets difficult, we lean into the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this reminder, this sweet reminder of the riches that you have deposited in your saints the way that even the most mature Christian could be discouraged. Thank you for this reminder of radical hospitality and presence and proximity and rehearsing this gospel rhythm that that those things are powerful in the lives of denying self and following Jesus. Father, would you continue to mature us as a church that we might continue to be a place where we bear burdens together and we journey together. We love you, King Jesus. Amen.